Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 107 of Control the Controllables. I love the messages that this guest gives and here is one of the very best. If things weren't going my way, I would have a hissy fit. I'd throw the toys out of the pram. And if I'm being brutally honest, I'd probably give up in a lot of matches because the mindset I had was if I'm giving everything I've got and I'm losing, then I'm a loser. And I don't want to be a loser. So therefore, I will give myself the excuse of saying that I gave up at the end. And that's why I lost. And what college tennis taught me was you're a loser if you don't give it everything that you've got. Outcome is not the important thing. It's your mindset and what you put into something. And if you're not giving everything, that's when you're a loser. And throughout the podcast, Dom Inglot gave pearl of wisdom after pearl of wisdom. He really did. Age 35, he's been on the tour now for the last 13 years after four years at US College. He's been as high as 18 in the world ATP semi-finalist at Wimbledon, semi-finalist at the US Open in doubles. He's currently training at Soto Tennis Academy as he prepares to play the ATP events in Marbella. And we tried something a little bit different with this podcast. We, we actually recorded it live from the academy. We invited people onto the video call. Did it work? I'm not sure if it worked so much as a live, but I certainly believe that it worked as a podcast and and I know that if you listen to this, it's another one of those when you need to get pen and paper to listen to the things that he's saying. We get into some fantastic insight, more than I'd bargained for, if I'm honest. We went off track completely on the structure that we had in place, uh, but that was because Dom just speaks so incredibly well. And it was a real pleasure to have this conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So here he is speaking live from Soto Tennis Academy. Dom Inglot, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great. I mean, I have to start off, sadly, by uh, saying that uh, George and Pete here actually gave me a bit of a a hiding today in the practice. So uh, congratulations to them, and thanks for giving me a absolute confidence killer before my next tournament thank you <laughs> so there so that guys for you for you guys listening dom's been here all week preparing potentially for miami and i guess this is almost the starting point dom because it's you know potentially you could be going on monday flying to miami or you could be spending the next three or four weeks in the south of spain playing on a clay court and i'm sure to people listening that's not that much of a tough life but it, it must get quite tricky after a few years and especially during a pandemic not quite knowing which country you're going to be in a couple of days time 
Yeah, I think it's, I mean, at the moment, it's, it is really tough. And I think a lot of players are struggling with the sort of decisions that you have to make about where you can go and where you can get in and, and how you can get about doing it. Because at the moment, you know, I haven't been able to go back home since December um, simply because, you know, UK passport holders aren't really, um, you know, flavor of the month right now. So, you know, to come here to Spain, if I leave the EU, I won't be allowed to come back to Spain. Uh, I don't know if I'm in Miami. So it's sort of like come here, hold the fort, wait to see if I get into Miami. If not, then I can play the Marbella ATP. But if I left, I wouldn't be allowed to get back into Spain. So then I would have had to play the tournament in Sardinia and all these things, you know, it kind of limits where you can go. I mean, we stayed in uh, a couple of weeks back, we stayed in Singapore and literally at the airport, we had, um, you know, people, security, moving us along in the airport, getting tested, then in a secure bus, secure bus, get to the hotel. You have to use the service elevator. They're spraying down all your bags, um, disinfecting them. Uh, so service elevator up to your floor, which is again with uh, people that are always, you know, they're in full PPE, escorting you to your room and then you're not allowed to leave your room. Uh, you have to book in certain periods of time where you can go to a conference room where you're allowed to eat food and you get a 40 minute slot for that other than that you have to go back to the room and then you the only time you're allowed outside is the 10 seconds between leaving the lobby of the hotel and getting into a bus to go to the courts so those are the situations that kind of prove quite difficult for us but at the same time i guess we have to also look on the bright side and be you know glad that we're able to play tournaments especially in places like singapore where most people aren't allowed to get in so there's challenges but I just try and look on the bright side and, and uh, you know, we get to play tennis and then there are times like this where I can enjoy the sunshine. Yeah, I was going to say, we almost felt sorry for sorry for you there for a minute, Dom. You know, almost. I was playing my small little violin here. <laughs> you know, almost. And then, and then I remembered that you're playing Valderrama golf course tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, and that does bring me on. And I, I can't have you, I guess, sitting in this environment and a little bit strange as I look across at you and give you a little wave across the court. You know, it'd be nice to be sat sat together doing this. But obviously times times don't allow for that. But you know how how has your week been? You've been you've been at Soto Tennis Academy your first time at Soto Tennis Academy. How, how have you found it? No, I've really enjoyed it. I mean I think um you know the setting is is a great start you know in terms of setting the mood because obviously you know as you can see now probably on the camera the the weather is not too shabby here um you know the courts are fantastic you know you've got uh, the hard courts here and then you've got the clay so both options and i'm really happy that i'm able to you know make use of either if, if you know depending on what tournament we're able to play and so you know to, to practice in this sort of environment especially if we're going to be playing in spain in a couple of weeks time but also you know even if i have to go to to uh, Miami this is the sort of environment that I'm going to be playing in and you know going back home if you look at the weather right now it's not very good you'd have, I'd have to go indoors to practice uh, under very strict circumstances so uh, and also you know you've got the players here who you know they bring a lot of energy um, you know they're keen to train they're keen to work hard and I think there's always there's always a, a fantastic training opportunities no matter what the level if someone is, is willing to work hard and, and, and the bust the gut as we like to call it so I'm really excited to, to be here and to train. 
It's certainly great to have you here. And like I say, I don't know if you have listened to the pods, Dom, and I'm not going to put you on the spot with that question. But what what I what I would say is with all the podcasts, I like we like to start at the beginning. We like to get context. You know, I think hearing people's stories, you now age 35, still a professional tennis player, and we'll get into that later, I believe, still got still still got a good amount of time left on the tour. Where did your tennis thing all begin? I was about seven or eight when I started playing tennis, and it really was a combination of actually playing uh, on holiday in Portugal. We used to go with my family a lot to Portugal in the Algarve in Quinta de Larga. There's this little kind of resort called Villa de Golf where we always used to stay and there used to be this little three-court tennis academy called Jim Stewart Tennis Academy there and that's really where I started playing tennis it was just on holidays and they had little tournaments for you know for kind of sort of like the kind of holiday goers and actually that's also where I start where I learned to play golf because I got a little uh, driving range right next door to it as well so it all happened there my sporting (laughs) kind of awakening shall we say you like sun (laughs) exactly exactly right exactly the Mediterranean vibes used to work for me. So yeah, it kind of started there. And then, you know, my dad saw that I was enjoying it and picking it up and came back to London. And my dad kind of enrolled me in these kind of squads at um, David Lloyd Heston. And, you know, I'd go once a week there. And then it started to come twice a week. And um, and it kind of built up from there. I remember just my dad one time was talking to another parent and he was saying, oh, you know, that this parent was talking about how his son was going to go and play the kind of Middlesex County closed under tens, I think it was. And, you know, if I was going and my dad didn't know anything about it. So, you know, learning from other parents, he kind of, you know, signed me up to this. And that's how I started getting into tournaments. And, you know, then you sort of go along with it in terms of what other kids are doing. If they're playing, what we had Adas tournament in the day for a weekend tournament where you'd have four matches or, you know, as a normal draw or back draw and just build from there. And it, I wouldn't say I was the greatest junior, but uh, I was enjoying it. I was having fun. And, and my dad seemed to just always uh, support me and, and my mum as well, of course. Because that, that was that was one thing that I found quite interesting was, you know, when I looked into your background a little bit, your dad was a professional footballer. And I'd like you to go into that a little bit. But also, I guess the question around quite often the child kind of follows in the footsteps of their of their parents in terms of the sport that they go into. So what sort of level did he play football and, and why didn't you follow I mean, my dad was, uh, you know, he played in the kind of the first division in Poland uh, for a team called Opole. And uh, I think he had a, a pretty serious break, leg break when he was quite young. Um, so he didn't carry on, should I say, to have a, like a longer career. But yeah, I asked him that question. I was like, why did you never push me into football? Because actually, I thought I was pretty good when I was younger um, in school and things like that. But in person, he just said he didn't really particularly like the culture surrounding football and he just thought that you know that that really wasn't a kind of thing that he was going to push me into and then but ultimately at the same time you know tennis was something that I really enjoyed and seemed to be thriving at so it's not like you know he didn't want me to do or was trying to force me to do something I didn't want to do I was playing tennis enjoying it so he kind of went that way and football I enjoyed but I don't know it just never really kind of went there and even though like you said he you know it's something that he had some kind of knowledge and, and familiarity with it never seemed to be a, an option that we kind of pursued and and so be it i mean so tell you what you would be a serious center forward i wouldn't fancy trying to knock you off the ball huh center, what, what position did he play he was a defender 
oh, he was he? a bender. He was telling me all the kind of the tricks of the trade uh, about how to win, uh, how to win challenges and things like that. And there's definitely some dark arts involved. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if I would have been that good at it. And and in terms of in terms of Dom, again, one of the things I just love speaking to people on these podcasts about is when they when they talk about almost the memories they have of of growing up. You know, I think we can we can sometimes get a bit stuck on the highest level of the sport, which which you've certainly reached, and 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 we want to go into this bit as well. What are some of your best memories growing up as a as a player? Oh, um... I mean, as I said, going, you know, playing those sort of little tournaments when I was in, in Portugal, I really enjoyed that, um, you know, making friends on on the, you know, kind of these tournaments, uh, whether it was in England also, but in Portugal. The thing is, like, I look back, at it, I don't think my dad put too much pressure on me and my mum either. You know, they just wanted me to have fun, wanted me to go out there and, and just try hard and enjoy it as best I can. You know, they, they weren't uh, extremely pushy. And I think that's probably you know, what serves at least, to, I wouldn't say in terms of the ability that I have or anything like that, it's, it's more to do with just the longevity of, with which I'm playing. It, yeah. It's just because I never felt like it was a chore. It was always, you know, to enjoy, to have fun, to to get the most out of it. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, I saw some juniors that I grew up with and their parents were quite, uh, you know, difficult, aggressive, you know, pushy. And maybe those kids, you know, they kind of fell out of love with the sport. And I think that's the end of the day, what's going to get you to the furthest is the fact that, you know, you have this sort of relationship with the sport that you grew up playing and, and you love every time that you step up on the court. And, and that's what's going to ultimately get you far. I mean, obviously, there's obviously cases where people, you know, don't particularly love the sport, but they're just extremely talented. You know, granted, that does happen. But I think in the, you can't think about those kind of outliers. You've got to think about the, you know, the general formula or equation that works and that is that anyone who enjoys themselves and, and and loves what they do is always going to be successful no i, I couldn't agree more and it was actually we had, we had mark petchy came on to onto the show a few weeks ago and one of the things he said which i absolutely loved is was it was around consequences so you know when somebody there's a certain action yes there's there's a concert direct consequence but there's lots of indirect consequences and and sometimes those consequences aren't seen for for years and years and i think sometimes as a, as a tennis parent it's quite easy to be so caught up in the moment and actually you might get a couple of quicker wins by being a bit tougher as a tennis parent with your child but however the consequence of the effect that has and i think you put it very nicely there the relationship with the sport you know and i think that was something that was you know very clear clear that you said there your relationship is very healthy with the sport of tennis you know and you're still playing here as a professional tennis player age 35 you know and what 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 sort of advice would you give to any parents that are listening around that i mean i think that everybody wants the best for their kid and and uh, you know no one's an expert and i think obviously every person is different some people thrive with praise and some people thrive through you know being a little bit more tough on them and, and so it, it's difficult to kind of give a over expanding sort of yeah. analysis that's going to work for everyone but i think at the end of the day challenging you know your kids to to work hard to to you know to always give it their best is the most important thing and i don't think it's so much the results that are the vital you know vital at the beginning 
that being said, there's the caveat of, you know, finding ways to win. Of course, that's important. But I think sometimes, that, you know, parents can be a little bit too over demanding in terms of the wins um, and at the cost of personal development, you know, whether it just be, you know, you have to make sure the ball goes in, but, you know, end up the kids start pushing the ball as opposed to playing their game or, you know, ultimately winning at under 14s is not vital at all. I mean, there's so many instances of guys who were exceptionally good at under 14 or under 12 and never had careers. And then you've got guys who weren't even any good at under 18s and end up being Grand Slam champions. So, you know, it doesn't, it, there's no one way of doing it. And, and having wins at young ages can sometimes, you know, be beneficial in terms of having support from your federations and things like that. But ultimately, there has to be a bigger picture. And, and I think the biggest thing is to, is to find a coach that you really trust and that you back and let them, you know, they have the experience, they have the knowledge of the game and as well as that, a little bit of how the kind of the, the pathway works and let them kind of lead the way and, and trust in them. Um, I think sometimes, you know, parents want to take it upon themselves to, to do that. And because they think, you know, I care the most for my child, I'm always going to want the best of them. And I, I, I totally understand that. But the advice that the coaches can bring is something that they have the experience that parents in most cases don't always have. Um, and it's important to listen to them and, and take them, take what they say on board. Very good. And, and you talk about juniors and, you know, having early success as a junior. What I, I'm not overly familiar with your junior career. I, I obviously, I knew your name. I'm, I'm not that much. It's quite <laughs> it, nice to it have didn't it. didn't really exist. <laughs> did it not? Did it not? So to, come I mean, on, I was, give us. I was not very good. I, I was, I mean, to be honest, I was a tall, lanky kid who, you know, wasn't the most agile or, can I say, um, coordinated. And, and I guess some people would argue that I'm still not very coordinated. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think it was kind of hard. I, I was always, I remember me and my dad always be like, oh, yeah, serve and volley. You know, we looked up to the likes of you know, Boris Becker, Goran Ivanisevic, Grigorzetsky, you know, those are the champions of, you know, when I was growing up or, or Henman and they were all serve and volleying. So I tried to do that. And as a sort of a lanky, 14 year old it was going to be very difficult to to be good at that but that's just what you go about doing and so you know I had a lot of guys who were you know kicking my ass uh, at, at a young age and but the thing is that we kind of stuck with it we you know we stuck yeah. with the servant volley and playing that game and obviously nowadays maybe it's a little bit redundant that that le that way of playing but but you could argue that that's maybe what served me for my doubles career um the fact that I did play that game and you look at other players who, you know, who did serve and volley, the likes of, you know, Johnny Murray comes to mind, you know, he's the Wimbledon champion because of the way he played. So, again, those aren't, those are going to be things that maybe weren't going to bring success at that young age. But thankfully, they helped me to some degree, you know, in my yep. senior level games. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say juniors was, uh, was a stronghold for me. And I know you can't give a, a definite answer on this because it's it's me as I'm about to ask you to give me your your opinion on what might have happened if a coach had grabbed a hold of you and said, right, Dom, you're a big lad, big serve, but actually we're going to spend time working on your defensive skills. We're going to spend time working on a bit more ground stroke game so you're a more well-rounded player. Do you think that would have led to a more successful career? Or do you think you would have just become, uh, basically, you're, you're okay at everything, but you're, you're a master of none? Jack of all trades, but master That's of none. The, there's yeah. the one. I think it's absolutely 
true with what you say. I think when I look at players nowadays who have definitive strengths um, and the way that they train, it's usually that they don't, they'll try to top up their weaknesses, but it's, it's a committal to what they do and, and making, honing that to be experts at that, whether it be their serve or whether it be their forehands. And I, I kind of think of, I was saying to you a little bit earlier about, you know, watching Milos Ronic and how he used to train when, when I saw him, you know, going up through the ages and the guy was just working his forehand nonstop. It was always patterns of play with his forehand. And because he knew that he was going to have a big serve, he was going to set it up uh, probably with a return that was not going to be that aggressive. And he would then have that next ball to really exert his dominance in the point. And he, and he worked on that a lot. And, you know, you don't see him out there kind of, you know, working on defending and, 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 you know, hitting monster backhands or anything like that. It was, it was a lot on his forehand. And, now you wait, you see the way he plays and he, he's done very well with that. He's got an exceptional serve. He's got a very big forehand and that's what dominates. And I think sometimes, obviously, there's going to be guys, and this is where it's important to understand the way you play, the way you're going to be as a player. There's going to be guys who are extremely good at the baseline and, and then they don't have the biggest game. So it's important they're going to be fit. They're going to have to be mentally robust. But you can't, you can't be great at everything. So you have to pick and choose where you're going to spend your time. Um, so I think if I was, you know, going back to your original question, if someone had said to me, oh, listen, you know, we're going to now work on, you know, your defensive skills and, and, and being, you know, quick at the back of the court, then probably I wouldn't have been that great either way, to be honest, because I wouldn't have had any kind of big weapons to try and dominate with um, because they wouldn't have been honed enough. Obviously, you can spend some time to to get them up to a little bit less, better level, but not be the main things that you focus on. When you're saying that, I guess what comes into my head, Dom, on that is very age dependent. You know, I guess if we if we talk about almost the toolbox, up until a certain age, we're trying to give kids all the tools, and then yeah. we're maybe trying to then bring it together. I like the birthday cake analogy. You know, we're giving all the ingredients and then we start bringing the recipe together to to make the cake that that, that we want for each individual. What sort of age would you say that you, you start honing in on that clearer identity, that clearer way of winning points that matches matches the way that you are? I think it obviously depends a lot on the individual and how they mature, because obviously you've got some kids that mature you know, much quicker than others. I think you have to look at it from a physical perspective of how physically strong they are as well. Um, but I would say somewhere between the regions of 14 at the absolute earliest, but I would yeah. even probably be on average a little bit later. And definitely you've got to, you've already got to have an idea by the time they're 17, 18 might be at the very latest. I would say 16 is probably the kind of the number I'm looking at. No, probably about 14 to 16 in my honest opinion where you've got to think, okay, I can see a vision for this player and now I want to sort of try and steer that player in a certain direction. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, come 14, I can see that this player is going to be tall, he's going to have a big forehand and now we're all going to do is going to do work forehand. That's not the case. But it might just be, you know, it's, it's that kind of that opportunity cost. If you, if you work on something a little bit more, you have less time for something else. And it might just be that, as you said, you know, you're giving them all the ingredients up until the age of 14, 15. And then at 15, you start kind of going, OK, you know, we're going to work a little bit more here and a little bit less here. And then that's that 
that difference starts expanding as he gets or she gets older uh, and stronger. But again, I think it's very much it's important to base that on a on a physical aspect. Um, and you know, because if if a, if a kid is not fully developed, is not strong yet, it's difficult to to kind of start pushing him in one certain direction. You know, uh, yeah. I think that that's have to be saying that the coach, parent, uh, or, or whoever's kind of leading the development of a kid has to take into account. So it's a very difficult question to say, but I think definitely by the time you're 16, 17, I would say that you've got to have a, a clear or a pretty clear picture of which way you want to go with in terms of how you want to play. Yeah, and, and, and it's something actually, and we've had some really good discussions earlier on this week as well, Dom, on, on this as well. We're, we're talking here about game development, but it's also about that that self-awareness of, of yourself as a person, you know, how you learn you know what your what your philosophies are, how you believe you play, and I know you touched on with me that you maybe felt earlier in your career that you were almost talked into not serving as big. Is that is that something that you could expand on to to those that are listening? I think there has to be a gut instinct um, that the player has to become responsible for their own development. You can't allow other people to only tell you do this do that do this and you follow you know like a like a you know brain dead chicken you know like yep. you have to have an understanding of this is what i want to do or this is how deep down inside of me i feel this is right for me because ultimately i think that that is what's going to lead you to be good when it comes down to it um and i think that when i was when i was younger uh, and even i still struggle with it today but I think I've always been someone who's, you know, been very kind of obedient, listened to everyone else, respectful, listened to all opinions. And I think I found it very difficult to take on board everyone's opinion and discard what I didn't like. Yeah. I didn't back myself. I didn't believe in myself enough to make the decision to say, you know what, that doesn't work for me. I don't want to listen to that. And yes, I like this. I'm going to take this on board. I'm going to work on that. And obviously, it's not an easy thing to kind of develop, and, and that requires a lot of maturity. But I think I've seen guys who have achieved, you know, very good things. They seem to have a, a clearer picture of how they want to play earlier than others. You want to be the shepherd, not the sheep. Now, there's obviously caveats to that. Um, and, and, you know, I think of the likes of, you know, let's say, you know, when Andy went and, and won the slams, you know, he's had to take on a more aggressive mindset, perhaps, you know, working with the Lendl um, to sort of, you know, take him that little step that he needed more to, to, you know, to win the slam. So there's always going to be little adjustments. But I remember watching, you know, Andy when we were kids and, and he, he has, there was such a very clear plan of how he wanted to win matches, even from a young age. Even my dad talks about it now. And he was like, you know, we were watching us play when we were 12, 13, 14, and everyone sort of was just winging it, should I say. And Andy, I think, having, you know, his, his mum, Judy, was probably had instilled a very clear game plan for him and for Jamie as well. Um, and, and, and their coaches, whether it be Leon or, or whoever worked with them when they were younger, kind of worked on those things. So, you know, one thing my dad always remembers was when we were very young, Andy used to go drop shot lob, drop shot lob. Like 
you know, you don't really see that from a young kid, but he knew that he could, you know, isolate, let's be honest, most people's lack of movement abilities and, and use it against them. Um, and it was a very clear picture that he had from such a young age. Uh, and, and you can now see that he's obviously strategically one of the, the best, if not the best out there when it comes to that kind of stuff. So, you know, that, that's from a young age, even a, a you know, 12, 13 year olds already kind of starting to develop a, a certain identity. But I think, you know, they were clear about what he wanted to do and he was clear and he was executing it. And I think it's important to know what you want to do or have an idea, a vision for yourself. And if you don't have it, you've got to have someone that you trust, a coach who go, okay, listen, you know, whether it, let's say it's you, Dan, and I decide, oh, I'm going to work with you. And together we say, okay, this is the vision we've set, you know, for, for, for me as a, to develop as a player and we're going to follow it and, and don't let other people come in. And I think that's sometimes the mistakes that we see not only in players but in even in organizations you know if people change situations too quickly to you know whether it be coaches ceos whatever then you can't you can't see something fully develop and and you'll never really you never flourish that way so to go back to your original point i think that's the the one thing i wish i'd done better um and maybe that's something a character flaw that because i'm not strong-minded enough maybe not fully confident in myself that I could have trusted what I deep down felt um, and as a result maybe it's cost me it's such a good answer and I have to take you back to one word that you used you, you said a character flaw but I guess as a child growing up obedience is seen as the best character trait you know from from the time that you know mums give birth to to kids it's all all about right milk at this time you sleep at this time you do this at that time you stick to that rule at this time okay now you must be in bed at eight o'clock you get up you go to school you you listen to me if i tell you to sit on that seat you sit on that seat i mean uh, maybe this is great because my kids are unbelievably disobedient so this this could be great dom <laughs> do you know what i mean this could be this could be something quite special for my kids when they become adults you know that they've got this kind of they've got this more forward thinking way of being but you know i do think we we, we tend we tend to try and do that so then when does that change you know oh now you've been obedient you've been obedient well done well done kids on, on that however now go and think for yourself go and develop your own <laughs> your own thought processes and it, it it's it's not reality and i just i do just wonder if in society we do maybe try and make that a little bit too much that way i think i think you might be right i mean with regards to you know development of, of kids and, and into adults there's such slow you know small nuances and it and it you know it can even come down to one simple decision made that is made that could affect the trajectory of how a person develops so by no means i'm an expert on this or, or i have the answer but i can only speak from what i was like and as a as a young kid i think you know my mum was was quite strict i would say she was you know very kind of regimental in, in how we had to, you know, wake up, brush teeth, go to breakfast, go to school, come back from school, do your homework, you know, extracurricular activities, bosh, 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 bosh. And it was, it was very much like that. And, and, you know, I think that there's definitely elements that have served us very strongly. And I say us, I talk about me and my brother. Um, I think we were, you know, both very good at school. Him, I would say exceptional. 
and it's served us well. But I think that where that hasn't helped us is the fact that we could be a little bit more decisive. We could be a little bit more, I don't want to say aggressive, but forward thinking in terms of what we wanted for ourselves rather than kind of gone with the flow or hope that those things fall into place for us. I don't think either of us are as, as much of a go-getter as we would like to be now. And obviously, you know, our parents try to do the best they can uh, and no one's an expert. No one, there's no expert parent. There's no nope. perfect rule book on how to parent. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to say, but I think, I think there's definitely elements of, of kids who parents go, listen, you know, you, you know, they, they praise them for, for what they do and, and they let them sort of, express themselves a little bit more and i think those are the kids that also have the opportunity to kind of develop those leadership skills whether it just be leadership of themselves but also you know whether it's with other groups and things like that and i think those are very important when excelling in sport yeah no very good i actually i listened i listen to a lot of podcasts when when i can and i was listening to one around skill development and and what they were saying you know experts in skill development they were saying that there is so many kind of constraints that we have in in the world right now you know nobody plays tennis without it being a squad nobody nobody goes to nobody dances unless it's a dance class you know nobody does it's all very very structured and they were saying that you really should in your house almost have like a an open an open anything goes you know, for like kids to be climbing on settees, to be, you know, and parents listen to this, won't be happy, you know, won't be happy with this. I, I kind of feel by default again that that myself and my wife are getting that right when somebody says those things. So I do cling on, you know, anything that involves disobedience and carnage, you know, in, in the household, it's like, yep, we're good at that. You know, we, you know, almost, <laughs> almost trying to play the card that we're doing, we're doing a good job. But if think about it, and I, you know, would even, you know, talk about my little boy who, who developed pretty good hands you know used to hit against the fireplace with soft balls and it was like you know he, he would get himself in these positions where we'd have to create as coaches we would know that as different paths angles and speeds of the racket but he's four years old and all he's trying to do is he's playing a little game and he's trying to get one more ball against the wall you know and I couldn't bring it to myself to stop him doing that and 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 whereas probably society would give a little bit of a a, a, a wagging of the finger at that and say that's that's not a good way to be. And yeah, I don't think there's any definite answers, but I certainly think it's a good discussion. And it certainly wasn't a discussion that I I planned on us having, but I think I think it is a really good discussion. And and I think again to those listening, and I know there's you on the Zoom call, but hopefully there's there's thousands more that are listening on the podcast. You know, Dom Inglot. 15 years on the tour, you know, spent all of this time as semi-finalist of Grand Slams and and basically got to age 30 and said, well, actually, I now know myself a little bit more, you know, and I think, you know, sometimes we expect our junior players or our players making transitions into the professional game to really understand themselves. And it, and it takes time, these things. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I don't think that any, you know, person, and we talk about players at this moment, you know, they don't come to the point of when they're 16 and say, I understand myself. I know my pathway in, in the sport. I know what trajectory I'm going with. But that's the thing is you've got to have a little gut instincts and you've also got 
little telltale signs that don't quite manifest as focused 100% certainty, but it could just be likes and dislikes that you follow. So if someone loves to run around and rip forehands inside out, then it's probably something they should keep doing. Because if you love doing it, you'll ultimately probably be successful at it if you if you love it because you will push yourself harder to keep doing it and so that's the thing is i think sometimes it, it, you don't want to stunt someone's love of something because i think that that will be beneficial for them now obviously where we have to kind of maybe put some certain parameters in the place so you can't just do one thing all the time or you have to develop other little skills and you know we, it's not just about tennis players but you know, allowing something, allow something to flourish without it going overboard, but allowing a little bit of room to see where this goes. And, and I think that's the thing is, is saying, you know what, when it comes to tennis players go, okay, what do you love doing? And, it, and if a kid goes, you know, what, I, I bloody love hitting drop shots. Okay, go with it. You know, and, and you watch, I mean, in, in tennis, how, how important is that drop shot to get players off the baseline, you know, come bring to them to the net and then, you know, hit them for winners. So, there's those elements that that's important. Um, and, and I always think about, you know, certain players that you see, if you had stunted them, you would never have the likes of a, a Santoro, for example, you know, Absolutely. Santoro, very unique player. Uh, I don't think you go out there and say, oh, this is the way you're going to be playing. But he, I hope at least that someone was like, okay, let this one flourish. And then you've got someone who's got in exceptional skills, exceptional tactician, because he was allowed to kind of go with 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 his gut instead of what he felt was right, um, and, and and it worked well. Sometimes, to 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 enclose someone in a box is is a mistake because then you can't that, let that flourishing happen, so to speak. And you you call Dom the bomb for a reason, you know. When we when we look at that, and and again, I mean, just seeing seeing your serve first hand today, and or th this week, you know, that seems like a real natural talent for you. Is that? Would you say you were taught how to serve, or would you say that was something that just came very natural to you? If I'm being completely honest, I think that the reason my serve is is the way it is is because you know, as a youngster. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, I was not the most coordinated. I was not the fastest. And I knew, I look back at it now, and I think what happened was that I was worried that I was going to get outmaneuvered. And as a result, I had to create weapons that would take that opportunity out of my opponent's hands. And I think that's what happened with the serve. And specifically, it's the second serve. Uh, I think when people consider me as, you know, Dom the Bomb or whatever, it's I don't think my first serve is much bigger than most people's serves. You know, I, I, you know, we've had it clocked with other players, and I would say there's quite a few players that actually serve bigger than me on the first serve. I would say that where it, where I stand out is my second serve. I am fearless in terms of going for my second serve, simply because that was something that I had to do as a youngster growing up because I did not want to get outmaneuvered. If I kicked it in, the guy would then put me in a corner. I'd be running, no chance for a win. That was just the way it was. So I had to go for a lot. And, you know, it's paid off when it comes to serving. I obviously had the, a very similar mindset on my ground strokes. And I would go for ridiculous shots when I was not in a position to do it at all. And, you know, my dad used to probably pull out most of his hair. And that's why he's bald now when he watched me play from the, from the back of the court. Because I was going for winners no matter what. 
And you always used to say, Dom can win this match by himself or lose by himself. Doesn't need an opponent. So, you know, those again, those are the things where I think that you don't want to stunt someone and saying, okay, you know what, don't go for the serve. But at the same time, going for something completely ridiculous, like an on the run, ridiculous ground stroke winner where you're in no position to do so, that's where you, that's got to be cut off because there's got to be a parameter there. And I think that probably, you know, hurt me because I never really learned to sort of build a point because I always wanted yeah. to finish it too quickly. But it's again because of the insecurity that I was going to get outmaneuvered. So um, maybe that's a thing where you say, okay, you know what, as a 14 year old, yeah, you are going to get outmaneuvered because you're lanky and, and uncoordinated. But once you get into your body, you kind of fill out and you get strong, you'll be moving better. And we have to have a bigger plan. But sadly, I don't think we really had that at that stage. Should we not be getting all of our players to absolute bomb their serves? If that's something that's served you so well, why why not? And I, I guess I don't know if this analogy makes sense, but I always used to watch cricket. And it used to frustrate me that there was a batter and there was a bowler. Yeah. And I used to say, well, just get off your asses. And if you're a good batter, just spend some time and become a really good bowler as well and then you can do both because the, the the game needs both so is it not a case of actually that players i mean certainly in spain i think the serve is almost taught in spain as starting of the point you yes. know rather than gaining an, an advantage so how much is it down to technique how much is it down to physical capabilities and how much of it is just down to actual intention of what you're doing with the serve well, I think it is with, with development of any sort of shot, it's development, the intention of what you want to do with it. I think sometimes, uh, at least I, I get the sense that in Britain, we focus as coaches a lot on the development of a certain stroke and not on the outcome of, okay, you know what, I want this ball to go in that corner at that cone, make it happen. And the human body is is amazing at what it can achieve um, if we want it to. Example I give is, if you look at someone like Bautista Agut, the tennis player, I don't think there's a lot of guys that would go out, coaches that would go out there and go, I want to coach a kid to hit a forehand like Bautista Agut because his forehand is not your prototypical forehand. But is it effective? Absolutely. He can put that ball within a foot or two of the baseline on a very regular basis. And and so I don't think you want to say, hey, listen, do this with your shoulder, do this with your elbow, do this with your wrist. Okay, maybe when you're younger and you, but eventually you can just say, and I think this is my understanding is this is how they coach in Spain is like, I want you to hit this much work over the net into that corner, make it happen. And if you, if you want to do it, hitting the ball through your legs and you can do it 90 out of a hundred times, credit to you but yeah. you allow that person to figure out a way of doing it and that's the thing is with a serve i agree i think i had to go for it so i went for it i went for it i went for it i trusted it i went for it i went for it and ultimately now that's standard for me the flip side of that is once you start using that in a match you forget or you don't learn to build points because you get too many freebies on your serve so if i'm being completely honest i, I always thought about this I was like if i had a kid i would tell him to smack the serve as hard as he can in practice and then in matches i'd say you're only allowed to use a second serve and i look at the reason i say that is because if you look at someone like andy who wasn't the strongest kid again when he was when he was younger 
he didn't have a rocket of a serve. He had to learn to build points to, to be tactically astute. And he had that in the bank. And then later on, when he filled out and got strong, he got himself a big serve. So now he has both. So I think the only reason that he learns that is because he can't rely on the freebie points from the big serve. You have to be able to develop something yeah. whilst not be over-reliant on it because then it will stunt other areas to progress. Yeah. Yeah, in and that's where the coach is very important. In theory, I love it. But how many kids have you got, Dom? Zero. <laughs> so because once you're a parent and your child is playing against other children and is losing and you see the smug look on all of those parents <laughs> and you see and you see how distraught your child is and you see, you know, all of these sort of things. Now, hopefully, you know, you'd like to think us being in tennis and understanding that that we're we're able to be a little bit more immune to that but i think we do feel it anyway you know as even though we know what we know what we know it then just gets a whole lot more difficult for those kind of ideal ways it'd be very tough for you at the side not to go bring the bomb out now's the time drop the bomb you're you're about to lose the set you know because you know as some other parents in your face and i think there's there's so many of those nuances and and difficulties that, it, that parents have, and, and I guess ultimately intensity of emotions that they have linked with their children, that sometimes we do come away from those sort of thoughts. But I, I really, theoretically, I think it's great. You know, I really do like the way of thinking. No, I, I totally agree that in practice, I mean, I, you know, again, I, I'm not a parent. I haven't been in that situation. And, and it's very difficult, like you said, to, to limit something that you have. And there's a whole host of other things that play a part, you know, like winning from a young age, you know, creates a winning mentality. So we haven't touched upon that. And, you know, the, the ability to come up with the goods when it matters as well, you know, you can practice all you want and have a rocket, you know, in practice, but you need to actually practice those things in a match to be able to, to produce under pressure. You know, Louis Kaye, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, you know, the doubles coach talks about the player and the performer. Um, and the performer is the person that can produce what he has at his disposal in the right moments. And, and, you know, even though a player looks fantastic on, on paper needs to come up with the goods at the juice point or the break point or the whatever set point. So those are the elements that we haven't even looked upon. I mean, again, these are all in theory and it's, it's such a fine balance of how to, how to kind of get these all perfectly judged. And, you know, we, we, we would love to make the kind of the perfect individual and the perfect player. And, and I don't know how, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if, you know, Roger Federer's parents went out there and were like, this is how we're going to create the perfect player. Yet this player just flourished and, and created, you know, one of the most amazing players we've seen in our time. So there's no foolproof way of doing things. And, uh, you know, I guess, as you said, it's uh, in theory, it might seem great and in practice, that's again where the coach's role is so important because as as a as a parent i'm not i'm not a parent but someone who let's say you know has a kid you would love to see these things but the the coach can see that or, or you through their experience has seen instances of what might work what might not work and it's important to to use them to to kind of use that experience to say listen we have to do this we have to do that in order to get the best out of the player 
by the end of this podcast we'll have it all sorted dom don't worry yeah we'll we'll have all the we'll have all the answers you know we'll be selling this podcast for millions by the end we'll we've put all the world to rights um but just to bring you back i guess into into your story and 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 certainly something again we've talked a lot on the podcast on is college tennis and and you've touched on you know making decisions and the impact that a decision has and on reflection, when you were 18, you went to University of Virginia. Were you going there excited? Great. This is a great opportunity for me to be going to America. Or were you going there thinking, oh, I failed as a tennis player. I'm now going to college tennis. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great question. If I'm being completely honest, I went there thinking I failed as a tennis player. And I'm going to college now to, you know, uh, to the graveyard of my career, shall we call it like that? Yeah. And that just goes to show how little I knew about college tennis and about professional development. Uh, college tennis is probably the best decision I've ever made. Uh, actually, strike that that my mum and dad ever made, because they made that decision on my behalf. Yep. You know, um, again, when we talk about parameters, my parents were like, "Listen, you know what? You're not tearing up the world as a as a teen prodigy," and you, you know, we're going to send you to college where you can develop, you can get a degree, um, you can you can strengthen physically, you can, you know, even become more robust as, a, as an individual. And that's one of the, that's probably the biggest thing that I would credit the US college system was that it made me into a far more resilient competitor than I was. I was, I was a kid who didn't know how to, how to fight. Let's be honest, you know, like if things weren't going my way, I would have a hissy fit. I'd throw the toys out of the pram. And if I'm being brutally honest, I'd probably give up in a lot of matches because the mindset I had was if I'm giving everything I've got and I'm losing, then I'm a loser. And yeah. I don't want to be a loser. So therefore, I will give myself the excuse of saying that I gave up at the end. And that's why I lost. And what college tennis taught me was you're a loser if you don't give it everything that you've got then you're a loser outcome is not the important thing it's your mindset and what you put into something and if you're not giving everything you're a loser that's when you're a loser not if you actually technically lost a match yeah. and i think that's the that's the best the best thing i've learned by far my coach would never rip us about results he'd always rip us about effort levels and intensity and we talk about what you know your your podcast is called controlled controllables that is what you can control you can control your effort levels you can control your your mental state in terms of you know being positive or being pumped up or things like that and you can't control the outcome a guy can come out here and smoke you because he's having the greatest day of his life and you have to be able to say okay i gave it my best shot and I lost, it happens. And I'm gonna come out here tomorrow and I'm gonna do the same again tomorrow. And I'm gonna do the same again the day after and the same again the day after. And if you do that day in, day out, the chances are it will go in your favor because you can't rely on those ridiculous wins where you're playing unbelievable. I mean, if you ask any player on the tour how many days they played perfect tennis, they won't even tell you one. How many days did they play unreal tennis? One, twice, once, twice a year, maybe? The rest is just about fighting and finding a way. Yeah, just just brilliant. It, 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 it's, it's exactly that. And I think, 
it's said and you said it really well there, Dom. And I think it's it's been said now by so many people that have been through this journey, yet there's still so many parents out there or players out there that think, and I'm stealing what you said earlier, they think they're the outlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that doesn't that doesn't work for me. I'm a, I'm a win. I'm going to, this is how I'm going to think, you know, and I think, you know, just being able to take that little 30 second clip, you know, we all need reminded of it, you know, now and then, you know, we do as adults, you know, we can, we can get consumed with, with, with other things out of our control. And we, we can absolutely do that on a, on a day to day basis, but exactly that. And I think just going to college for that very reason, <laughs> if you took nothing else from your college experience, experience that has set you up for life and here you are 17 years later and I've seen you and that's uh, this week you are giving your absolute all from that first ball in every single session and it's it's been such a pleasure to see that and you know I like to think we have that environment pretty good here with that anyway but I've, I've seen you even push the guys to take it up a step as well but what what else give me two more minutes on the college experience yeah I think um when I went to college, I would say that the the college system was dominated with coaches who were the sort of the, the classic American coach that you might even see in films, which is like, you know, hustle, come on guys, you know, let's just work hard, let's you know, tough it out and, and not, you know, maybe the greatest technical coaches. And I think that's changed since I've left college. Uh, you now have a lot of good coaches in there who perhaps were great players themselves or used to be good coaches, for example, USTA or something like that, or from different countries even. And now they are combining. You have a coach. There's two coaches in each, each college, if not three, sometimes with a, with a volunteer yeah. assistant. And and they will have these kind of guys who are pushing you to work hard to, you know, the, the sort of the competitor or what we talked about before, almost a coach who is there to help you become the performer. And there's a coach there to help you become the player. And yeah. so they can work together in tandem. Um, and I think that's exceptional. Now, I spoke with Kevin Anderson. This is about two years ago at Wimbledon. We were on the massage table next to each other. And I was, we were talking about college and when should players go to college in, as juniors? At what level should they go? And he was saying to me, and I said, to, I go, look, in my opinion, I think unless you're inside 350, you can benefit from college. I think college is a great option unless you're inside 350 at the age of 18 or 17. And he was seen saying that 250. And I was like, wow, okay, 250 in the world, in ATP, men's. Because I think a lot of players, they think, oh, you know what? If I go to college, I've got to go for four years and I'm not playing with the best players in the world. And, you know, I'm not going to be competing at the highest levels. And it's complete nonsense. Because ultimately, if you're outside of 350, so let's go off my one, the lower level. If you're outside of 350, you're playing futures. And if you're playing, you're playing futures in some places that are not that enjoyable sometimes, which, okay, great. They can teach you a little bit about yourself and to make you toughen up a little bit if you've got to go and play in, you know, some godforsaken country, who knows. Whereas in college, I mean, the level of competition is so high, there's actually a lot of pressure because you're not just playing for yourself, you're playing for your teammates. Everyone is fired up. You're playing really good competition at least twice a week, if not more sometimes. You have to do it whilst going to school and developing 
yourself as a, as a person as well. That's what I think other people forget is that you're going there and you've got to learn time management skills. You've got, you've got to actually get a degree if you want to stay the whole time. You don't have to, but you're learning to better yourself as a, you know, intellectually as well, which can, which can benefit you. I don't, I don't believe that someone saying to you, you know, if you go to school, that's not going to help you as a tennis player. I, I disagree with that because I think there's elements that will help in everything that you do whether it be a tennis player helping in your education or an education helping as you as a tennis player. So I think all those factors are important and you've got world-class facilities, you've got great fitness trainers, you're amongst other top athletes as well. You're in, if you go to a good school, you could be amongst a whole host of winners, you know, who NCAA winners who are then going to go on to be, you know, major league baseball players or, or basketball players or football players. And you're amongst that group and you rise up to it as well. So there's a lot of players who played one year, left after one year, and now they're playing top 100, you know, ATP or WTA for that matter. So I think it's a fantastic route to take and, and, and it can also be done for free. I mean, you're not, you're not paying to do that. If you, in some cases, you might have 100% uh, scholarship to go to America and train hard four hours a day, individual tennis, with a group of other 12 other players in a team, enjoyable, I can't speak highly of it. Now, of course, there's gonna be, again, the outliers where you have a guy who is 300 in the world as a junior, and you know he's ready to go. He, you don't wanna be stuck in futures. You wanna get through futures, straight to the challenges as fast as you possibly can, because people get bogged down in futures. And you, you know the facilities there aren't ones where you can actually strive to improve, in my opinion, a lot of cases. Um, whereas challenges, you know, the people are doing it the right way. And from the experience I have, I might be wrong. People might tell me I'm wrong and I'm, I'm happy to be proved wrong. But from what I've seen, you want to be at the challenges. So unless you have a ranking that can get you into challenges regularly, I think college is better than, than toughing it out futures. Yeah, no, very, very good. The advice, the advice I would always give is, is unless you're winning or making final regular of professional tournaments, then go to college. You know, I think if you're if you're finaling, make winning some futures, and that's in line with what you're saying. Because if you're making regular finals, you're you're winning futures. You're around about three fifty in the world after a few months of doing that, and and I think that that's really important. And and again, having the combination of the education, it's something I'm very passionate about. And it, it's it's actually actually Lloyd Glasspool who we've spoken about this week, obviously a, a very good friend of, of, of both of ours. It, and we look at Lloyd, who's who's about to break top 100 in the world doubles, you know, and is showing signs of going much higher. He started his master's degree a few months ago at Loughborough University, age 27. And I, and I think it, it, that also goes to show just that kind of, just taking that little bit of pressure off, you know, that there's, there's no coincidence for me that he started his master's degree back in September. And you look at the results that he's had since September, you know, winning an ATP title last week in France. And, and I think too many players can get consumed with just tennis, 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 you know, and it's like you're thinking tennis, you're thinking of that forehand return that you missed. You're thinking, why didn't I do that? It then 
just overtakes the mind and just having that ability actually if you're if you're doing a master's degree or you're doing a degree the next thing you know you're studying for a test you don't have time to think of that full hand return that you've missed you know your mind moves on very fast and again i would say it's a very common theme this is episode i believe 107 of the podcast you know there's been amazing conversations and there's starting to be some really clear messages that are coming out from all of the guests and and i would say that would be a one you know just take care of your education you know even when you're playing on the professional tour have something else in your world have something Mm -hmm. else you know you've you're 35 dom and we'll talk about this in in, a little bit later about how long you'll be playing for and who knows but you've still got hopefully 40 50 years left of your life after you play and that's a long career you know we we need to keep perspective of where that where that sits yeah i I couldn't agree more i think you know, we, we, we talk about tennis, but as a person, it's about personal growth. And tennis, as you said, is, is an element of your own personal growth as a human being. Yeah. Um, I think that to, to kind of pigeonhole someone or for someone to pigeonhole themselves as I'm a tennis player and nothing more, I don't, I, I don't want to say it's detrimental, but it's definitely not. I, I don't th- I think we have, we're capable of so much more as humans. And I think it can, it can really benefit uh, every individual. And, and as I said earlier, not just, you know, for you, but in terms of your education, but it can also benefit your sport, you know, in all sorts of ways. Uh, and I think it's important. I, I remember this is, this is some years ago. Um, I was doing an award ceremony for juniors in Middlesex because I'm from Middlesex. And, you know, there was like, so I was giving out these awards some of the kids and the parents were there and afterwards there was a Q&A session so I asked answered a few questions and then there was a parent that came up to me and they were like listen what are your suggestions my daughter is 12 years old and she's in school and she's now starting to fall behind the girls that are in full-time tennis do you think we should pull her out of school and I was like no no please don't do that please I said to go, listen, you know, it's not a decision for me to make. That's absolutely what you've got to do. But I said, you should absolutely exhaust every option you have before you pull people out of school. Um, now, obviously, you can do private schooling. You can do homeschooling and things like that. But, you know, I remember when I was, at, when I was um, going to St. Benedict's, which is a school I went to, they were actually very helpful in, in terms of, you know, helping me to, to schedule my, you know, my tennis around schooling to, to get the most out of it. But I used to have to go to tennis at, you know, 6.30 in the morning through till eight. And then at eight o'clock, shoot off to go to, to school. And then afterwards, you know, come back and, you know, we'd have games where we used to play rugby or cricket. And that's where the school allowed me to take that off so I could go and take tennis lessons. And instead of PE in the morning, I'd go have a later lesson. So, you know, you exhaust all those options and, and you know, you get to do your GCSEs. And after that, I went, I tried to do private tuition for my A-levels, did that for a year. And at that point, I was traveling too much and actually on the ATP tour, well, actually, no, then I wasn't, I was in the futures. And that's when I stopped. But then I went to university a year later. But, you know, I think you have to, you have to try and, and keep that personal growth as long as you can. And there might become a time when, you know what, you just can't do anymore. It's, it's, it's too much. And I understand. But if there's any way to keep it, I think there's, you have to try. Lovely message. 
I want to move you into you now as the professional tennis player. And I guess to kind of finish the college career, I have to also mention you won the NCAAs. You know, that might be for another time, but, you know, to win the NCAAs is a massive, massive deal. I would imagine that you're forever in folklore in, in Virginia and in Charlottesville for, for that achievement. And I remember having a conversation with Louis Caillé uh, back in 2008, 2009. And he turned to me and I actually said to him, come on then, who... Who's the next player coming through? You've got this kind of double system going. You know, Jamie's made making his move. Who's the next? And he said, Dominic Inglot. He said, he doesn't have a ranking yet, but he'll be top 10 in the world. How much of an influence has Louis Kaya been on your on your playing career? I mean, Louis has, has, been, has been vital because, you know, ultimately he has backed me and shown belief in me before I really even had belief in myself. And that's why, I, you know, I go and talk about how coaches are very important. Co you know, someone like him, it's very important to have that kind of a person. And obviously, Louis is exceptional at what he does. You know, he's probably the best doubles coach in the world. And for someone as, as experienced and as knowledgeable as him to say that, you know, you're like, I remember when he said, he's like, you're going to be top 50 in a heartbeat. And I was like, huh? And, and he was like, yeah, I believe that you can be top 10. And I, I really was like, wow. I, I, you know, I remember when I first met him, I was playing singles. It's probably about 800 in singles, not really doing a whole lot. And, you know, he came out and was like, I think you can do this and I want to support you and help you get there. And so together with Chris Eaton, we were playing and he was, you know, helping us, giving us advice and doing sessions with us, you know, teaching us the fundamentals of doubles. And, and we shot up very quickly, and I think it's important to have that. Um, and he's been he's been vital for my development. And uh, yeah, I guess I guess that sometimes I feel that I've let him down a little bit that I haven't been able to achieve the top ten status. Uh, obviously, yet. I'm still striving to get there. Yes, exactly, exactly right. So I'm still striving to get there, uh, and hopefully fulfil his prophecy. So yeah, I, I I think he's been very he's been instrumental. Absolutely. Because when you came out of college, you know, pretty much, you know, I was having a little look at this last night and I was like, right, let's have a, let's have a look. And I was like, oh my goodness, you went back in 2009, you went seven finals in a row at futures level, one sixth of them. You know, you went and made then a final, I believe, of your first challenger. You then... In 2010, at your first Wimbledon, you and Chris Eaton took out the world number one pair of Zimanovic and Nesta. You know, it, it all seemed to come pretty easy, you know. So I guess my question is, is that on the back of the belief that Louis gave you? Or is that on the back of the confidence that you had coming out of college? Or is that on the back of learning the, the Louis Kaya British tennis double system? Or I guess a combination of them all. I think it's a combination of them all. I don't think it'd be it'd be unfair to basically say that you know one was far more important than the others. I mean, you know, we played a lot of doubles in college, developed a lot of skills there, but they were, should I say, unrefined skills. You know, the positioning was was a bit all over the place. You kind of had to kind of figure it out yourself. But you played a lot of doubles, so you kind of saw it, and then played good okay great we won NCAAs and that obviously offers offers a lot of belief and then I went to play with someone like Chris Eaton who you know had been playing pro for a while Chris Eaton was a good tactician 
that that's what I would say Chris Eaton was exceptional at was as a player he knew his strengths and his weaknesses and he knew how to exploit other people's weaknesses better than most I'd come around and even in doubles so we played together and then you got the Louis who kind of then refined the skills that we'd learned in college so positioning percentages how to kind of take away certain things from opponents and make them force them to hit the most extreme shots which are in your favor not in their favor and once you kind of put all that together then we start having results and and granted winning breeds winning so you know going and playing all those futures you don't lose a lot and that gives you confidence it doesn't matter the opponents because ultimately guys ball striking abilities i think in my opinion sometimes between futures and the atp tour is not massive it's not a massive difference there it's just more to do with how people come up under pressure and what they do and and where they're going to come up with the goods in the heat of the moment that's what is the difference but if you're feeling confident you feel like you're going to come up with the goods in the heat of the moment so you can kind of bluff it a little bit and i think the thing is we went to wimbledon in that in that instance me and eaton and we were serving big and we had confidence we are you know what we're going to go out there and we're just going to rocket serves down and we're going to take it to these people and you know maybe there's a little bit of that brash arrogance that you know we're out here and we can do this yeah. and no pressure and it and it, you know we had a great result so um that was a big part of it but uh, louis definitely helped us you know instill you know the, the kind of the quality we had set those little bit of the parameters allowed us to flourish but yeah. set the parameters of you know let's let's play smart as well and and together that kind of brought the best out of us and I always think, and again, it's quite a com- common thing that's coming out of, of the podcast. It's like when players are, are, are rising at first, it's nice because the the numbers get getting lower. <laughs> They're seeing themselves, oh, these points take me to this ranking and, you know, gaining new experiences. People don't know who you are. They don't know your strengths and weaknesses. You, what number did you get to before there was like a bit of a like, oh, we feel like I'm starting to plateau a little bit or at the very least starting to deal with some adversity here? I would say probably around 40 okay. would, be my, would be my guess. I mean, the reason I say that is because, you know, with Chris, after that Wimbledon, we got to about 130, something like that. That was literally a one year to the day of graduating. And then me and Chris had a bit of um we had a decision to make because our singles rankings were too far away from our doubles rankings. And as a result, we'd either have to carry on playing futures for our singles rankings to benefit, or we'd have to carry on playing challenges for our doubles rankings to benefit. And that was the situation I was in. We talked a little bit earlier about Louis talking about the confidence of the belief. Louis said, listen, I think you're going to be a top 50 doubles player at least. I think even higher. Let me help you do that. And in singles, I didn't have anyone who was saying to me, hey, I can help you become a top 200 singles player, let's say, and get to the main draw of Wimbledon or things like that. You know, I didn't have any coach who was helping me with that. So there was no real discussion for me. I was like, I want to go and play doubles. I want to play at the, the highest level, even if it is doubles as opposed to singles. That's what I want. And Chris had a slight different decision. He said he wanted to carry on playing singles because he still felt like he had unfinished business there. And so we had to kind of split at that point. So I started playing with Trent Huey, my old teammate at college in Virginia, who I actually didn't play with in college, but we were teammates. 
And from that point, I made like really quick improvement. I, I got injured uh, a few months later and I had to take a year out almost because I basically destroyed my knee and my ankle. And I came back and I had my protected ranking and, and Tret. Well, actually initially I started playing with Chris again to play a few of those lower tournaments, got back with Tret again, and then really moved up within that year to 40. So I finished yeah. the year 40 and that was then when it started sort of becoming a little bit tougher because you played a year on the ATP, people had kind of worked you out, they knew who you were, they knew your kind of strengths and weaknesses, the scouting reports were being shared between players so they knew you know what you'd kind of like to do, your tendencies and that's where you had to sort of, now you're defending points, now is the pressure that you're not just gaining points and making yeah. your way up the rankings, you had to start defending from previous years. And that's always the time of the year that you sort of start seeing that resistance. Um, so it's just a question. I wouldn't say it's a ranking so much as what you can achieve in your first year. And then you're going to have a little bit of pullback with the defending. And then it's that next step. So hopefully it's like three steps forward, one step back, two steps forward and on and on. So, yeah, I would say for me, that was around 40. Scouting report. Don't let them serve. You know, I can just, I can just see it now. Don't allow it. <laughs> Whatever you do. <laughs> oh, if only it was that easy. <laughs> and, and, and in terms of, I guess, adversity, you touched on an injury there, and I know there's been a few of them throughout the career. You know, how, how have you dealt with that difficulty? You know, and there's, there's been, you know, been out for a year is a long time. I know, I know there's been a few longer term injuries. How have you been able to overcome that? I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. That one year out, I, I did my ankle ligaments, so I've had, you know, my ankle ligaments replaced. And my knee, I did pretty badly as well, so I had to have microfracture surgery for that. And the, the, the knee still bothers me. The ankle's fantastic. The knee still bothers me to this day, so I have to, you know, get injections in my knee, you know, every six months to allow it to kind of, I can play on it, basically. If I don't do that, it's gonna, it's very difficult. And then there's other elements that start coming in, you know, as you get older, you can't do as much as you used to do. And I think the other factor is that, I'm, you know, I'm not the smallest or the lightest guy, you know, I'm 95 kilos, I'm six foot five. There's a lot of impact going through my joints and uh, other people are maybe a little bit more fluid and can handle it a bit better. Sadly, I can't. So I think one of the mistakes I made was not, not really trusting my body or knowing the signals that tell me, hey, listen, pull back now. And let's take it easy here. Or, you know, I was still kind of thinking I'm 22. I've got to put four hours in every day. And that's that's silly uh, for me anyway. So I have to be a bit smarter about how I kind of train and, and how much I train. But also you've got to be very diligent. I mean, it's easy enough for me to say, hey, listen, guys, everyone's got to be disciplined. You've got to do your warm-ups. You've got to do your warm-downs. You've got to do your stretchings. You've got to do your prehab. You've got to do your rehab. You've got to do your fitness sessions. All these things to allow you. But... People sometimes don't do it because they don't have to do it. Whereas yeah. I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm not walking on court. So sometimes yeah. I can come across, um, oh, Dom's actually looking pretty professional out there. But if I don't do that, I'm not walking out on court. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a must for me. Yeah. But I think that that's one of the kind of advice that I try and give younger players. And I'm playing currently with Luke Bambridge, who's, you know, he's 25 years old and he's still, you know, very fresh. Um, and I say, listen, mate, you've got to be very careful because it'll come up at you. 
you'll get that one injury, then you'll focus on rehabbing that one injury and then another injury will happen somewhere else because you neglected that place or because you started compensating. Then that injury will happen. You start focusing on that one and the first one will flare up again. So you've got to kind of, you've got to nip that in the bud by being diligent. And it's, you don't have to do it. It's not sometimes that you have to go and kill yourself. It's just doing little bits day in, day out and taking care of the little things and, and that will help. Are you good at this whole advice thing? You should, you're going to be a good coach if you ever choose to go down that route. Is that, is that a route that you think you might go one day? <laughs> uh, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know. I don't, maybe I just like talking, who knows? <laughs> but um, I mean, obviously you never know what happens. I, I, I thought, because I finished finance at school that I might go down that route personally, but um, you, know, you never say never. I think uh, because right now I'm playing, it takes up so much of the time. Sometimes you think, can I do more sport after I'm done with sport? Who knows? But once you kind of leave a hole in your life when you stop playing tennis, then maybe you need to fill it with sport again. So I think that decision will come probably closer to the day that I retire. And how much longer have you got on the tour in your, in your mind? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's the million dollar question. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I think last year I, I really thought that it was going to come sooner than I thought. Okay. I was you know, not in it. I would say last year I really struggled. Not so much the COVID stuff, but I had injuries now. Last year pretty much was just nonstop injuries. Starting from Wimbledon 2019, I was having injury after injury, really struggling, you know, changing partners quite regularly. Um, and, you know, you never really, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the kind of guy that likes to stay in a set partnership. I feel like I can develop within a partnership. I don't like the chopping and changing aspect of it too much. You know, also with my partner that I was playing with, it was, you know, lovely guy, but we kind of, you know, didn't have too many things in common that, you know, kind of spending time in, you know, in the off time together. So sometimes I felt as well a bit by myself, you know, in the room, you know, with COVID and things like that. And I think I kind of, this year, I feel very reinvigorated, um, because I'm playing with I don't Luke. know why, Dom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. In this sort of environment, it definitely can be reinvigorated. But <laughs> playing with someone like Luke, you know, fellow Brit, I think we have a lot more in common. Uh, you know, traveling with the likes of George Morgan, again, another Brit. It's just, it's a lot more enjoyable. I think I've enjoyed the trainings again. I've, you know, back healthy again. Um, and I'm starting to really kind of get that, that love for it back again. It isn't as much of a grind I think as it was last year so hopefully there's a there's a couple more years in me but uh, I'm not sure I'll be able to kind of match the likes of Leander Pays who's you know <laughs> four five and still playing and that I can promise you that won't be me yeah that's that's, that's incredible to do that and you 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 talk there about about the partnerships and I think it's it fascinates me you know we've had so many different doubles people on on the show and and I guess if I just kind of go through a couple of things with you one which I'm going to get to in a minute it, it is playing back in 2009 you played with with Scugo who eventually you went on and made a, a semi-finals of Wimbledon with, you know, which I think is uh, incredible. You know, you're playing with them kind of nine years previous of futures. You then were pretty much with Trett for the most part for three or four years. You then seemed to have a year, and I know I had a little smile on my face when you said you don't like to chop and change partners too much because I counted 14 different partners in 2016. 
so that <laughs> that uh, that's incredible, but probably quite normal with a lot of players. And then and then you seem to have steadied the ship a little bit. But there there is a lot of movement. There's a lot of changes, not just with yourself, but just in the world of doubles. So why? I, I ask all you doubles guys, why? Why is there so much change? I think everyone has um, everyone has different reasons. I would say. The times that I've kind of chopped and changed is it's maybe the partnership is sort of starting to stagnate or it's not going very well. And once or twice I've with set partnerships that I've played with for quite a while, I've said, look, maybe it's time for a change. But in most cases, we you see a lot of players ultimately single, you know, we develop a singles player, so we are very self-reliant and individualistic. And in my opinion, in tennis, the ego is a very important thing um it can you know we talk about confidence arrogance to an extent it can take you a very long way and then you go into a doubles team and you know you're still fundamentally that same individualistic person but now you're with another individual and problem is that when things don't go your way a lot of players like to play the blame game because they because their ego is very fragile and ultimately if you can blame something else, you keep your confidence, arrogance, your strut, whatever you want to call yeah. it, intact. And I think a lot of players like to say, you know what, that's your fault or that's not working for me because my partner's letting me down or that kind of stuff. So I think in my case, there's been a few times where my partner's like, listen, you know what, I think I can upgrade. And they play strategically. They Either they get to a good ranking and they go, that now's the time to really upgrade because I'm in demand. Or they've gone and, you know, things haven't gone so well and they've decided, you know what, actually I want, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, you know, flee the sinking ship, so to speak, and try and find something where I still have a good ranking. And I think I maybe sometimes have made a mistake that I haven't done that. And sometimes maybe I've, I've kind of pulled the trigger a little bit too early and I should have uh, carried on a little bit longer with someone. But, you know, that's the way it goes. I think it's very difficult. I think some people have no qualms with chopping and changing. You know, it, it's difficult. I mean, I remember one partner, we we won a tournament and the next week he was like, I'm going to find someone else. And I was like, huh? We, we just we just won the tournament. You know, we're playing well. And he was like, yeah, no, I think uh, I think I can find, you know, I, I can get play play with this guy. He's been looking, he's higher ranked. I can be seeded now in this tournament, which is bigger. Okay, that's, that's all, you know, there's not much you can do about it. I think when I was younger, I'd start freaking out and start snapping at the player and, Nowadays, you can't control that. You can't let it phase you. You wish them best, and then you carry on. So what percentage have you been dumped compared to being the dumper? <laughs> I would say I've probably been dumped more than I've done the dumping. I would say maybe like 65-35 or 70-30. Yeah. yeah, I would say that's my guess. And, and are you a are you a face to face dumper or a text dumper? No, I'm a well. Sometimes you can't do face to face, uh, and in the cases with Trett, I actually told him face to face because I think we were friends and and we played together a long time, and absolutely you have to do that. And in a few other cases, we were in different parts of the world at the time, so I but at least I try to call. Yeah. I, I always try and call and 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 do it like that. At least I think try and be respectful like that. I think 
it's tough when you get dumped by a, an email, which I've had in the past. So that one, that one was that was a, a bitter pill to swallow. But I guess it's it's like it is in all in all cases. I mean, doubles doubles partnerships are very much like real world relationships. Yeah, but if you take if you take like the big brother house yeah so it's just a big house there's a hundred of you not even a hundred 80 80 of you on the men's side 80 on the women's side and okay a few singles guys as well and you chucked them all in and people were were swapping and changing relationships constantly you would imagine there was a lot of bad blood now granted a love relationship is probably a bit more intense than a doubles relationship but do you do you see that the or do you find that there is that kind of carried over bad blood on the tour because of that sometimes sometimes yeah i mean I, as i said I've, I've i've i was like that when i was younger i kind of i remember one some someone once ditched me and i was absolutely gone with it i was fuming at the person one thing i would say is that i can't really hold grudges for very long i find it too taxing and too tiring so after about yeah few weeks i was like okay i'm bored of actually being angry at this person so and tired so i would let it go but i know some people who you know to this day don't let it go I don't um so you know they'll kind of be polite and but you know the relationships have fundamentally changed because of this so yeah i think everyone's individual i know some people i i, I let's say i said look, look, i'm sorry but you know i think we have to kind of go a different route and they're like okay i wish you the best mate and we're still fine and you know they understand it i think usually the older the player the more relaxed they are about it yeah, because yeah. they've kind of seen it all they know that it's just part and parcel of the sport last couple of bits positive experiences or negative experiences but experiences and i think the first experience i have to talk about is is you being a movie star back in 2004 and i'm sure some of you must recognize this handsome hunk of a man that was the stunt the stunt double for paul bettany in in the classic film wimbledon that that took hollywood by storm so so how was it were you struggling to move in the streets for the next few years for autographs you know how was how was your movie star experience yeah, now I was getting mobbed by legions of fans. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm actually surprised that there wasn't an Oscar won by that like that movie. They must have, you know, kind of missed it in the post. But no, I mean, listen, it was it was a great experience. I, you know, I'm a massive movie fan, um, and for me to have had that experience to say that I was in a in a Hollywood movie is gonna it's probably actually one of the the most fun kind of memories I'll have you know, in, in my kind of career. Uh, and, you know, it all came about because they were looking for, you know, extras to be in the film. And, and Pat Cash was the tennis coordinator on the movie. So he was like, listen, come by Queens Club, you know, this one day they're going to be, you know, looking for guys, you know, just to mill around in the background or play on courts in the background whilst the filming's going on. And then one of the casting guys was like, you look a lot like our, you know, main character. Would you be interested in doing a st stunt double role? And I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, sure. I mean, I thought, honestly, I thought it was going to be like four or five guys that were doing the same role. I didn't know how it worked. And then they were like, okay, yeah, we'd like you know to sign you up, and you're going to be the main character's only stunt. Like he's going, to, you're going to do all his tennis, and um, you're going to have to do the whole summer. So I was like 16 or something at the time, and I was like, yeah, hell yeah. And also, to be honest, like you know, the money that you make that went towards college. So how much did you make? Was, oh no, I can't reveal that. Come on, give us a ballpark figure. Oh, I've got to remember this, to be honest. I mean, it's a long time ago. This um, more than more than five grand. 
Yes. Less than uh, less than twenty. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was around twelve or thirteen, maybe something like that. I knew, I knew I'd break them, guys. I knew I'd break them on this one. So, yeah, that was that was a lot of money. That was a lot. It's of a lot. It's it's it's, a, it's a lot of money. money. Into I'm I'm gonna have to I'm moving you into Davis Cup 2015. GB champions. What what an experience that must have been. Yeah, I mean, just to be part of that squad, um, it, it's going to be, you know, again, another memory. This time professionally, it's going to be right up there. I mean, you know, the, the guys that are on the team, uh, obviously all the guys that we know now, you know, with the likes of Andy, Jamie, Evo, Kyle, James Ward. I mean, they, they, they did an amazing job. James, I always think of James Ward's match against Isner. Yeah, that in was America, the one. Was, I think that sometimes, you know, I, obviously Andy did an amazing job of winning all those matches for us and, and Jamie in the doubles was fantastic as well. But that James Ward match was was absolutely massive, massive result. So, yeah, I think, and, and all the guys played a massive part as well. You know, I also think of Kyle in that final, you know, he was two sets to love up against um, Goffan playing amazing as well. So I'll always remember that. And I think, you know, the, the coaches as well deserve a lot of credit as well. You know, people like Beecher and Wheeler, the physios, the doctors, everyone played a massive part of it. And uh, and Leon did a great, great job of keeping us all, you know, feeling as a team, enjoyable moments. I think, you know, there's been instances that players have been unhealthy in the likes, you know, I, I think of, you know, Andy and Kyle in later ties. They were unhealthy, but they still wanted to be part of the Davis Cup yeah. week. So they would come amazing. down and, and hang out and train and even though they weren't playing because those weeks were so enjoyable and you know that that was the that's a big thing that's a big thing and and obviously you know the cream on the cake is the fact that we were able to uh, to win so uh, yeah i mean it's a very special moment for us and a challenging davis cup experience i know i mentioned it to you the other day and you told me off for mentioning it and now i'm mentioning it on the podcast so you probably have the right to tell me off twice but the the tie against spain just down the road in marbella you and jamie murray you know quite a pivotal tie one all going into it and it just never quite clicked on that day and it felt like that must have been a difficult place. I mean, we talk about Davis Cup in such a positive way, and uh, but when it goes against you in those those big moments, those must be quite difficult things to take. Yeah, that one was. Yeah, I think that's probably the worst experience I've had in Davis Cup in terms of how I felt about what I what I brought to the table. For me, in the the year that we won, if I'm being if I'm being brutally honest. You know, I, I wasn't able to contribute a point to the team that we that won that year. So I always felt like I had a point to prove because I, you know, in a way, I don't really feel like uh, I deserved to kind of say I'm a Davis Cup champion as much as the other guys because the other guys all provided a point. For, whereas I wasn't able to do that because we lost to the Bryans. And so, you know, then you get the opportunity to go to Spain and I wanted to you know, desperately kind of get a point for the team. And I played very poorly that match. And I was very upset afterwards. I was really down. Um, so so that was a that was probably a low point in the sense of, you know, how I felt. And, you know, Cam, I remember, played an amazing match with an amazing win there, giving ourselves a chance. 
And we thought, hold on a second, if Cam can do the same thing again, this doubles point, you know, this could be right on against Spain in Spain. Like, wow. And, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I felt like I let the team down there. So that was really quite tough. But again, that was 2018, I believe. And that happened in the February. Yet, I guess it shows your bounce back ability and, and your ability to, to trust yourself and, and trust your game because only three or four months later, you found yourself sat semi-finals of Wimbledon, two sets all against Jack Sock and Mike Bryan. It, were you starting, because I believe you were two sets to love down in that match, then you won two seven sixes to get it to two sets all. Did you start having thoughts, you know, take us back to that time as well? That match, I just remember that we started off the match and we were very flat. You know, we were getting smoked, if I'm being completely honest. Like, nothing was really going for us. We weren't able to get a foothold in the match. And I just remember being quite tired as well. You know, like, it'd been quite a draining experience. You know, we'd had a, a four-setter the round before, which actually was a really, which is quite a long match. That was on court one. And I remember also, I think one of the earlier rounds, we had a five-setter. That was that was really draining that lot, that five setter. So I think I came in to that semis a little bit tired. You know, we went two sets to love down pretty routinely. And I remember saying to Franco, I was like, listen, Franco, man, we cannot go out like this. We we cannot do this. And I remember saying to him, I was like, listen, what we're gonna do is I'm gonna smash some caffeine gum to get myself kind of fired up artificially. And I was like, the first opportunity we get, if we hit a forehand winner, anything where we can do something, we're gonna get the biggest pump out we possibly can and we're going to get so fired up and we're going to you know just drain ourselves and funny enough i knew that if i'm being completely honest i knew at that point that we'd have to go five sets obviously to win and i don't think i'm going to have enough in the tank but i was like i don't want to say that i i didn't i wanted yeah. to leave it all out on the court i wanted to say you know what i literally had to be dragged off that court just give it everything you've got and if you run out of steam you run out of steam but don't hold anything back so I remember I hit an unbelievable forehand and I just got the biggest pump out ever. Suddenly Franco got alive as well. Franco started playing really good. You know, we held a really close tiebreaker. I think it was in the fourth set. And in the fifth set, we had a break point. I still remember it now, break point against Mike. And, you know, we I made a return across court and Mike went, I think, down the line to Franco. And, you know, when you think, who are you going to hit the ground stroke to? Do you hit it to Mike or do you hit it to Jack Sock at the net? And he went to Mike <laughs> and Mike hit a very good shot at me. And then I wasn't able to like, I reflexed it, but barely. And they put it away. And that was kind of our half chance. And I just remember the latter stages of the fifth, I was toast. Uh, I, I got broken. I think it was at four all or five, four or something like that. And, you know, I was toast at that point. So it's a shame because, you know, like maybe that could have just got me through if we'd kind of got that last lift. But yep. uh, I mean, it was not to be. And, and, you know, those those guys were an incredible team. I think probably, in, I think I'm not the only person who thinks that Jack Sock might be the best doubles player in the world. Mm. Um, you know, when he's on his day, he's unplayable. So, um, yeah, he's exceptional. And, you know, couple that with Mike Bryan, who's one of the best doubles players ever. It's a tough team to face. And, and they came up with the goods when they needed to. So, you know, absolutely massive credit to them. But, yeah, it's a shame we weren't able to pull that one out. And before we move into the quick fire, I think it's such a good way to to, to end the podcast, Dom, on, on a story of you leaving it all out there, you know, and I think, you know, when when 
Time is done for you to hang up the rackets whenever it might be. Certainly one of my takeaways from you is you are a guy that is is going to leave it all out there. You're going to give everything that you possibly can to to your career, to to the match, to the set, to the game, to your practice court. And it's it's not a bad way to be be remembered when that time does come. Well, thank you. I mean, I, that's the thing. is That's all you can ask. And again, that's you know, something that I learned in college is just do everything you can, give it your best shot every single time you step on court and and also with, you know, your little things off the court. And that's the thing is you won't, you won't be disappointed no matter the result. I think sometimes that's the key is just to focus on the process rather than the outcome. And whatever happens there is, is, is fantastic. But, you know, you don't want to be having sleepless nights going, I should have done this, I should have done that, I should have given it a little bit more here or there, so... Are you ready for the quick fire? This is what the people have really come for. They've had to wait an hour and a half for this, Tom. We've been waiting diligently. Yeah, so I'm ready. And it is quick fire. Just uh, there's a reason we call it quick fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. What's your favourite slam? French Open. What's the best tennis academy in the world? Soto Tennis or Soto Tennis? Soto Tennis, the latter. Uh, serve or return? Serve. First or second serve? Second. Forehand or backhand? Forehand, but I don't know why I'm answering that. <laughs> Doubles or singles? Come on now, is that really a question? <laughs> I formation or normal formation? I formation, because that just means I can just send an absolute rocket <laughs> down the tee. What age will you play to? 38. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup. Injury timeout or not? Not. Five sets or three sets at male Grand Slams? Doubles. Doubles? Doubles. Three. Three. That's a 35-year-old speaking, folks. If you could have one rule change in tennis, what would it be? Uh, it's quick fire. I mean, I'd definitely get rid of the lets, 100%. I'm not sure that's the most important rule change, but that's the one I can think of at the top of my head. And who should our next guest be on the show? Have you got Dan Evans? Have you already had him? We've had Dan. Nick Kyrgios. Oh, be a classic, wouldn't it? So you've just signed up to try to find get Nick Kyrgios on the show. That's part of the passing of the baton of control the controllables. You will not be listening to me about that one. So <laughs> I hope he's got. I hope you've got his WhatsApp. <laughs> Dom, you've been a star. It's been great having you at the academy. Brilliant having you on the podcast. And go and rest that body up to to go again this weekend. Thank you, guys. A massive thank you to Dom Inglot. Not only for the podcast, actually, but also he has been at the Academy now for the last couple of weeks and he's going to be here for the next two or three weeks as well. And he is such a pleasure to have around the place. You know, I'm on court with him and he's, I'm about to feed a ball in and I look across and there he is. He's coaching, he's helping the younger ones. He really has got stuck in and I know we touched on it in the in the podcast and uh, he is going to make a great coach one day, whether he decides to go down that route or not. Without a question, he really is. And yeah, thoroughly enjoyed the chat once again. And yeah, this time we, we did it a little bit different. 
trying to do the, the, the podcast live. You know, we had, we had our table set up and I have to thank you next to me here, Vicky, as well as the rest of the team at the Academy for getting tables, chairs ready, sound checks. It was, it was all going on. Um, but yeah, hopefully it was a success for those that listened. I think everyone walking into the club didn't quite understand what was going on. For, for those of you that didn't see, um, we'd planned out how we were going to do the live podcast. And then the night before, Dan suddenly remembered oh, social distancing. We can't sit next to each other. We can't share a microphone we have, we, and not be wearing masks. There's no way you can talk to each other with your masks on. We wouldn't understand what you were saying. So there's probably going to be some pictures on our social media, but we had Dan on one service line and over the other side of the net, we had Dom set up on another table. We had to call in with their own Macs on a Zoom and then we were worried about feedback from talking to each other. So we had to put you far further away across the net. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting uh, <laughs> an interesting call. How did you think it went though live? Yeah, not good. I mean, it, it was very interesting. I think... I think first thing for me, for me to say on that is uh, it's just nice to try something a bit different. You know, it's you know I I preach a lot about having tolerance for failure, about developing, about trying new things, and I think you know it's the same with the podcast. It's like yeah, let's let's try something. You know, if it if it doesn't work, we we learn our lessons, and and we move on. Um, I I could hear him one to two seconds before I then heard him in my earphones. <laughs> Um, which which was kind of interesting, and and I suppose listening back here as we as we're going through this, it's amazing how clear he's coming across. He wasn't coming across as clear to me uh, as we were talking, and I think just my reflections. And I'd love you guys that are listening to send your reflections as well. I think we just got caught in between a podcast and and a live, and and I made a very conscious decision actually that. We were going to record it as a podcast, and and because of that, we didn't make it interactive. That those that came onto that the was, onto the call that was gutting. Yeah, but I, but I think I think listening back now, there's there's thousands of people that listen to these podcasts, and there was twenty five people on the live, and and I and I think for for those that want to want to hear it, it would have been a little bit strange. And now let's stop to answer the question from Bill or or, or however it might be. So yeah, I think all it means is moving forward. I think what we'll look to do is I think we'll look to have a little part of the Control the Controllables brand. And we'll do our lives, and you know maybe we'll we'll use social media so people can dip in and dip out a little bit more, which is a little bit more difficult to do on on a Zoom call. So all in all, it was it was a nice experience. To be honest, wasn't a whole lot different to how we normally do it. I just had a few more people watching us do it which may be added to the pressure a little bit oh come on you're the one take wonder you don't feel pressure in situations like that what um what i think we didn't predict was how long you guys were going to talk for and what you couldn't for those of you who tuned in what you couldn't see afterwards the minute they pressed stop they then carried on chatting and for another 10 15 minutes i was like oh and um, what can you two still be talking about? But actually, I think there were probably questions that you still had. And, and I know that people, yeah, had, had sent some in that we didn't get a chance to answer, which was a shame. But what a great talker he was. Yeah, So articulate. Very, very intelligent, very articulate, very thought-provoking. And yeah, we've had lots of conversations over the last couple of weeks. We've, we've really hit it off and, you know, just 
had had a shared passion for the sport, you know, really getting insightful, you know, and I thought very, very interesting the way that he he spoke that it's 30 years old before he started to really get to know himself. And and I think we expect a lot from our players, you know, as coaches, as parents of our of our children. And and there Dominic Inglot, 18 in the world, is talking, saying, Do you know what? I actually didn't feel confident enough within myself to turn around to a coach and say, no, this is the way that I like to do it until he got into his 30s. And the average age of stopping playing tennis is 21. And and I thought that was that was fascinating, you know, and, and so many then layers to that conversation from that, you know, the obedience bit you know, that we talk about and, you know, how we are setting rules and barriers for our youngsters. And actually, as a tennis player, we need to be an independent thinker. We need to have our own brain. So I think there was there was lots of subjects, and I'm sure over the next two or three weeks, myself and Dom will, will probably have a beer or maybe a, a sparkling water <laughs> as he's preparing for tournaments and chat over some of these things again. Yeah, I think it was certainly very thought-provoking for parents and, and coaches, actually. Um, I love loved what he said about when he got to US college and that he talked about, you know, um, he wasn't really a fighter and he'd often give up or tank, as we would as we would uh, call it in the UK, when it got difficult, really. And, um, you know, certainly when I was playing, that was kind of almost a regular occurrence at junior events. And I was just saying this weekend, um, we've been at a tournament in Marbella here. Tournaments are starting to ramp up again in Spain, which is amazing. And um, you just don't see that in the Spanish kids from tiny tots, eight, nine, ten. You will never, ever see a Spanish no, player never. ever roll over, ever. They will fight until the last, last point. It's unbelievable. It's in their culture. I, I don't know what it is. What's the difference? We haven't quite worked that out yet. It's just in their makeup. And I think that as we experience going over to U.S. college, it's the same over there as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, the, the the comment that, that Dom made that I loved, if you're not giving everything, then you are a loser. And and it's it just kind of typifies and takes everything into into account in that one in that one comment because we want the black sheep to be the one that isn't giving their best. And I know when I was brought up, and I know in some cultures, the black sheep is the person who is giving their best, who is professional, who's stretching, who's who's taking their time in between points, who's using routines, you know, and it's all of these things that are in your control. You know, there is no mistake why we call this control the controllables. It's, it's our philosophy, and so many people that have come on recently have found themselves going, yep, control the controllables. You know, Louis Kaya spoke about it. You know, so many of the people are talking about that because it, it, it ultimately is in the comfort you take from that. And I think Dom, age 35, now that he's got that message very clear, he knows that all he can do is give his absolute best every single day, be a good dude, you know, get on with people, try his very best, and then you won't fail, you know, and I think if more and more people can live by that, you know, they're going to they're gonna find that they're going to have more success in terms of winning matches, but also ultimately they're going to have more success in lots of different ways in life as well, and I thought, again, that was a lovely message that's coming through loud and clear from all these podcasts. 
Yeah, he did actually have some lovely messages throughout that episode, really. And I hadn't realised that he'd won NCAAs over in the, in the States. I, I didn't realise he'd, he'd had such a successful college career. Yeah, and NCAAs, for those listening, again, I don't want to assume that everybody knows that, but NCAAs is, is, is the National Collegiate Athletic Association, which is all sports. You know, you have all the different sports that you have out in US college. Well, the Division One is the highest sporting excellence that you can have out there. And to, to win the tennis version of what they call the Nationals, if you are from America, that is an automatic wild card into the US Open. You know, Lloyd Glasspool won it back in, I think, 2015. Uh, Paul Job, much publicised and, and back to one of our earlier episodes, won the singles in 2019. And it really is a, is a massive deal to do that. And it, it gives you a fantastic platform as you go on to your professional career. And there's going to be a lot more US college chat, actually, in episode 109, which is coming up on Tuesday with David Mullins. Yeah, so David's currently the managing director at the Intercollegiate Tennis Association. And I think this one's a really fascinating one for our listeners because David... David played in college. Uh, he was a Davis Cup player for Ireland, so I know there's a big Irish influence uh, with the podcast as well. And then he actually went on to coach at University of Oklahoma for many years. So he's got the experience as as the head coach, you know, and every as a player, but then as a head coach, but now in very much a management role in in how things are going, how how college tennis is going. During COVID times, you know how how college tennis is going in the future, where where it's all heading, and just understanding the whole business side of it, and we really do unpack that and delve into that significantly. And and I think anyone that's got any interest in US college or any interest in Irish tennis, that one's going to be an absolute cracker for people to listen to. And yeah, lots more fun conversations to come up. I can't go without mentioning a conversation I'm going to have this week with Tom Gullickson, who captained Tom at the US Davis Cup team. You know, a fantastic guest to have on. And yeah, lots more coming this way. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables. Control the Controllables.